Well, good morning again. Uh, I'm Doug. And uh, when I was a young man, I read a book called The Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Peck. And there was one passage from this book that just leaped right out at me when I, when I read it. And this is what it said. Uh, Peck said, Our view of reality is like a map with which to negotiate the terrain of life. If the map is true and accurate, we will generally know where we are, and if we have decided where we want to go, we will generally know how to get there. If the map is false and inaccurate, we generally will be lost. While this is obvious, it is something that most people, to a greater or lesser degree, choose to ignore. They ignore it because our route to reality is not easy. First of all, we are not born with maps. We have to make them, and the making requires effort. The more effort we make to appreciate and perceive reality, the larger and more accurate our maps will be. As a young man striking out on my own for the first time, this was such an appealing truth to come across that we are charting our own maps. We are mapping reality and figuring out the ways to success and fulfillment. Uh, And when I read this, it encouraged and inspired me to say, all right, I want to make sure that I've got one of the good maps. I don't want one of those inaccurate maps uh, or to settle for a lesser map. I want the best map to chart out the best life possible. And so when it came to figuring out what kind of map I was going to make, uh, and this ties into the series that we're in where we look at the different paths that people tend to go down, uh, there was one clear, obvious candidate for the person whose map I should model my own map after, and that was my dad, Colonel John F. Moss. Uh, this is a picture of him uh, in the cockpit of a C-130, which is the plane he flew for most of his career. Uh, and my dad, uh, when it comes to map making, really uh, took, the, he took the cake. Uh, He was born in a very poor, blue-collar family uh, in the south side of Chicago. His mom died when he was a little boy, and so his dad tried to raise him and his sister uh, single-handedly. They didn't have a lot, uh, and he sure didn't have a lot of people coaching and guiding him uh, for what he wanted to do. But from a very young age, he knew that he wanted to fly, and so he figured out his own path. He he worked hard and diligently. Uh, He ultimately got a commission in the Air Force, and and went and had a, a very long 25-year career in the Air Force and, and living according to a very clear and well-charted-out principle, which is that he was going to be true to his own ethics. He was going to follow his own guiding star uh, and, and not deviate from that. Uh, my dad was a man of honor and a man who kept his word. Now, a couple of examples of that that, that stick out to me is, um, if you know anything about the Air Force, the, the best version of itself, the Air Force is a meritocracy, right? The, the better job you do, then, then you get promoted. And, uh, and so your, your, your pay and your, your clout and your authority, it all is commensurate to the quality of work that you do in the service. Now, there's kind of a lesser admitted uh, caveat to that truth, which is that you get promoted based on the good work that you do, as long as your commanding officers happen to see the good work that you do. Uh, and so the people that, that tended to get ahead around my dad were the ones that knew where, you know, what p- positions or opportunities were going to be high profile enough or get some notice uh, and, and get people seeing and witnessing the good work that they were doing. 
Uh, but now at that time, uh, the Air Force was split into two commands. There was MAC and SAC. Uh, MAC was Military Airlift Command, which is what my dad was in. And then there was SAC, which is the Strategic Air Command. And they didn't mix or mingle, uh, which meant that your, your path upward, you know, your upward mobility uh, as a career in the service uh, was contingent on the people in your command. Um, and so there, this moment came early in my dad's career where his base was hosting a SAC training event which no one wanted to have anything to do with. They needed someone to be a liaison, to help set things up for the event, to make sure that the visiting, you know, incoming people were, were well-prepared and were hospitably treated. Uh, and no one wanted to do it because all the work you did would be invisible to your superiors. Everything, the only people that would see what you were doing were the people in SAC, and they had no impact on your career. Uh, and so no one wanted the job, but my dad, the, the job that was assigned to him, and so he like he did everything, was going to do it to the best of his ability. And so he did. He worked hard. He made sure that all of these visiting commanders were, were well-treated and knew where they needed to go. Uh, and in fact, he got a commendation for the job that he did welcoming this, uh, this visiting group. And when his commanding officer brought him into his office, it was, it was, there was this funny moment where the, the officer officially commended my dad for doing such a good job with this visiting SAC training conference, and then immediately afterwards unofficially berated him for wasting his time and effort on the other command and said, next time, spend your resources on our command and the things we need you to do, not the things other people need you to do. Uh, And yet my dad could do no differently. If he was tasked with a job, he was going to do it. He was going to do it well, and he wasn't going to let things like uh, career advancement prospects uh, be a deciding factor for what kind of a job he did. Uh, And my favorite coda to that story is, in fact, that my dad did such a good job that the SAC general that was running the training event noticed this young major uh, and actually crossed the the command chasm and to his MAC counterpart and said, boy, that that young man you got there did a really excellent job, even when he should have known he didn't have to. Uh, He's a really good guy. And my dad actually, crazily enough, got a below-the-zone promotion for the work he did that none of his superiors actually got to witness or see. But that's who he was. And in fact, we spent so much time uh, overseas that I got to see him show this, this ethic and this honor just in a variety of situations, not just in how he did the work that he did uh, in the military, but because we were overseas, he was constantly, we routinely had uh, diplomats and foreign generals uh, over to our house because that was part of his duties uh, eventually was that we, we would host the diplomats and the foreign generals, you know, his counterpart and, and the other nation's armies. And, uh, and I just got to witness firsthand what it looked like to be uh, the, the proper host. That my dad, he, he would go uh, out of his way to make sure that this was a welcoming, uh, diplomatic, warm environment. He'd put good music on. Uh, he'd make sure that he knew what kind of drinks that visiting person liked, and he'd make sure to have them well-stocked. Uh, and this is what I grew up witnessing to the point that every house I've ever owned, the first thing I make sure to get set up is the beer fridge. That's what you do. You're going to have people over. They're going to maybe be helping you move or going to come visit your new house. And you've got to be set up uh, to make sure that they are received with dignity and honor. That that's what you do. And my whole life, my dad made it very clear to me that the thing that mattered most to him as a parent was that, that he over and over again said that what any promise he ever made to me and my sister, he would keep. And I can stand here today and tell you that's a promise he never broke. Anything he ever said to us, every promise he ever made to us, he fulfilled. He was a man of of his word. He was a man of honor. And so you can guess and see why, as a 19-year-old who's trying to figure out what kind of map I want to carve in the world, my dad's path was a pretty appealing one to want to walk in his footsteps. Uh, and so I did. I spent a lot of time saying that um, that the path of integrity is is where I wanted 
to, to spend my time and effort. See, there are a lot of good things about this path. You see, I grew up because of my dad's influence and because of his uh, safety and, and the, the environment he created around us. I grew up believing that the world makes sense and that it's a safe and ordered place. And anything that's out of order or, or anything that is broken or, or less than what it should be, that's just part of our duty to, to be forces of change and growth and that we're supposed to be the ones who make the world what it was supposed to be. This is the path uh, that I walked for many, many years. And maybe this is a path that appeals to you as well, just even hearing my talk about my dad. And, and so there are some traits about this path, things that if you walk this path, you'll, you'll tend to notice uh, about people who live this way. So for example, people who live this way, uh, they, they are naturally virtuous and ethical. These are the great moral leaders of, of, of good character, people that stories are told uh, of them for, for centuries to come. This is Abraham Lincoln, uh, a man who... who pulled himself up by his bootstraps and educated himself and became a principled leader. This is Nelson Mandela, who, um, who spent decades uh, in prison unjustly, uh, and yet his own moral character was so strong that he was able to persevere through that and eventually become the leader of the very same country in which he'd been wrongly imprisoned. Uh, this is someone like Melinda Gates, who by every account has been the moral compass for Bill Gates. As he's amassed all this wealth through Microsoft, she's been that uh, Jiminy Cricket on his shoulder that said, what are you going to do with all this wealth? Uh, and she has been a force for good and charity all around the world because she's a woman uh, of character and integrity and honor. We need these people. We need them to make society better. We need them to lead us and to show the path to the better way. Or if you know people uh, on this path, and then you've maybe noticed this about them, that, um, that there's always a right way and a wrong way for everything. And right now, I know that we've just split the room because some of you are nodding along and saying, well, yeah, of course there is. Yeah, absolutely. And then the rest of you are going, oh my goodness, could we just let ourselves off the hook for once, right? Because people that live this way, there's a right or wrong way for everything. And that's as little as how you're supposed to load the dishwasher to how you need to fix the country. And everything in between, there is a right and there is a wrong. We've been battling this because I am definitely one that's more on this path. My wife is not. And, uh, and for the entirety of our marriage, I've been saying there's a right way to fold t-shirts. And she's been saying, for the love, there are more important things in the world. And then she watched the art, magic art of tidying up with Marie Kondo. And now finally, 11 years later, she said, oh, there is a really better way to fold the t-shirts. I said, this is what I've been saying. And for the record... So I only watched one episode of this show. The way she wants you to fold things is the way I've been folding things. Marie Kondo agrees with me, not the other way around. So there's a right way or a wrong way. And again, for some of us, this just feels natural and right. This just this resonates with the deepest part of our souls. But for some of us, you look at this and you go, that's just, it's such a, a tiring way to live that everything has to be evaluated. And yet for people that, that spend time walking this path, that's where they are. Or how about this? On the path of integrity, you sincerely want to improve yourself and the world around you. Isn't this a good thing? Don't we need people that sincerely want to improve themselves and the world around you? 
Uh, it's such a noble goal. Uh, but what's interesting is that, again, it becomes an opportunity for, for disagreement for people that don't particularly love this particular map. Uh, and they say, really, do, you, do we have to improve everything? We recently had a thing where, where my four-year-old drew me a really nice picture uh, of an elephant. And, and I took it, and Mia was right there. And I just said, oh, that, this, is, this is such a beautiful picture of an elephant. Thank you so much, honey. You know, but, but elephants only have four legs, Right. Why don't you draw me, maybe draw me a different picture of an elephant. And, and Melanie's just watching this and saying, oh my goodness, can't you just let your four-year-old draw you a picture without having to improve it? And I say, honey, it's got too many legs. It looks like an elephant spider. It's horrifying. <laughs> Can she, why is it so wrong for me to want my daughter to, to understand physiology of animals, right? Uh, but this is the way life is. Uh, and, and in fact, it's what I witnessed uh, growing up. Again, the sincere part of this is that it, it doesn't come from, from a bad place or an artificial place. We sincerely want to be better. Uh, in fact, one of the things I grew up witnessing with my dad uh, and my mom was that uh, they were constantly wanting to be the best version of themselves in any arena. And one of the ways that included was driving. And so there was a, a standing just rule philosophy in my house that, that whoever was driving, the other person was the navigator, right? My dad was a lifelong pilot, and, uh, and so you've got a pilot and you've got a navigator, and that's how you make sure that the plane stays safe and that it gets where it's going. And so my mom had carte blanche to at any point tell my dad anything that she saw or noticed or was worried about, and he would not react with, you know, uh, scorn or anger or defensiveness. He'd just say, oh, thanks, honey. And, uh, and that was just the way it was in my house. You know, they could be driving. Mom would say, oh, there's a, that truck's merging in kind of weirdly. And he'd say, oh, thanks, honey. I saw him. I, I got it. And, or he hadn't seen him. He'd be appreciative that she'd pointed it out. And one of the reasons I was really excited to get married was I was like, oh, I'm finally going to have my lifelong navigator when, when, I, when I get married and I find my wife. And, and so then we got married and, and we'd be driving and, uh, and I'd kind of say to Melanie, hey, so wh- wh- where's the next turn or where do I need to go? And, and she'd say, I have no idea. I'm not driving this car. You figure out where you need to go. Or, or I'd be driving and I'd make a wrong turn. I'd get distracted. I'd miss the turn. I'd go the wrong way. And then I'd, I'd realize it and I'd say, oh, well, shoot, I, I made the wrong turn. And, and then she'd say, yeah, I kind of suspected that. I was wondering why you went wrong. And I said, well, why didn't you tell me? And she said, well, I don't know. You seem pretty confident about what you were wanting to do. So I just figured I'd go along for the ride. And, and I was so frustrated and aggravated because I was saying, this is, this is your job. I, I want to be the best driver I can be. I don't want to get our family lost. And I need you to help me out on this journey because I sincerely want to improve. Uh, and as bad as that was, it was nothing compared to the first time that she drove and I was in the navigator seat. We'll just leave it there. It didn't go well. We don't, we don't, we don't, need, to, we don't need to say anything. And, and so people on this path, we want it so bad, and we don't understand how anyone else around us doesn't also want this same thing. I spend so much of my life evaluating myself and, and wanting to be better and be the best version of myself. And so then when I come across others who don't feel that same way, it's very abrupt and shocking. And they say to me, stop criticizing me. Stop judging me. Stop making me feel bad. And I was like, what? I wasn't trying to do any of those things. I just, don't we all want to be better? And the answer is no. No, we don't. People that spend time on this path, they want to be better. The rest of the world wants the people on this path to leave them alone. Because, but finally, these people are so important because they... 
they are conscientious and dedicated workers themselves because they hold themselves to such high standards. They, they work hard, they work well, and, and they lead by example. A person on the path of integrity, they don't, they don't sit on an ivory throne and, and tell everyone else what to do. They, they live the life. They, they take very seriously the need to be uh, people of integrity themselves to model that for others. They're not people who, who say, you know, um, do what I say, not what I do. They say, no, do what I do, because what they do is, is they hold themselves to a standard of virtue and excellence and ethics. People on this path believe that you got to do right and think right in order to be right. And much of the time, it does make them good people, good leaders, uh, important people for change and growth in a society and in a family. And I'll bet, just as I've kind of given a high-level description of this path, I bet this sounds appealing to a lot of you, partly because you're in church. There's a reality that the religious people or people that, that, are, that have an inclination towards church, this is one of the reasons why they like it. They like this idea that there's a right and a wrong, and they, they like knowing, having this certainty that there are good things that we are aiming for and there are bad things that we are not, that, that we're avoiding. And if you look around our culture, I'd say this is probably what most people in the culture look at Christianity as. I say Christianity is about being integrity, having integrity, being people of integrity. It's a place where people go because they want to do the right things, believe the right things, be the right kind of person. And in fact, this is what a lot of our growth and development now today is, is built towards. If you read any leadership or professional development book, all of them are saying there's a right way to be a leader. There's a right way to be a parent or a mom. There's a right way to grow your business there's a right way. All of those are, are implicitly appealing to this particular kind of map. This map that says there, there, in any given situation, there is a better way to be, and I want to be that better way. And all the leadership gurus and all the successful people, what they're ultimately selling is their secret map that says this is the right way that I've figured out. And we buy those books in droves. We listen to those, peop- those leaders all the time. And in fact, it's gotten to the point where when, um, when a person in the culture, a, a TV uh, creator that's, that's made a lot of TV shows recently, when, when he's trying to decide what heaven looks like in this show, The Good Place, uh, and he's, he's trying to distill succinctly th- this version of heaven, what he's decided heaven must be is a place where they keep perfect score of every choice and action you've ever taken. And good actions earn you lots of good points and bad actions deduct from your total. Uh, and this is the view of heaven that our culture has, that it's a place where people do right and avoid doing wrong. My favorite one on here, by the way, is in the top. It's uh, if you fix a broken tricycle for a child who loves tricycles, that's plus six points. But right below it, if you fix a broken tricycle for a child who is indifferent to tricycles, that's, a, that's neutral. It doesn't really help you any at all. all right? But this is what the culture views of Christianity. It's what they view of faith. That ultimately all it really is uh, is a set of rules and systems. And that this virtue of integrity is the end-all, be-all, defining thing of faith. And yet it isn't, I hope. I hope that for us, faith is not just about being able to to think right, do right, be right, so that we can be better than other people, that there's something deeper to faith, that there's a relationship with God that's guiding us, not just this need to be the perfect version of ourselves. Because there's a shadow side 
to walking the path of integrity. There are a lot of ways that, it, that it's virtuous and beneficial to yourself and to society, but there are also a lot of ways where it ultimately takes you down. One of them is that if you, if you walk this path too much, uh, it's secretly an angry way to live. You see, if you were here a couple weeks ago, Dion talked about the path of strength. And people on the path of strength, they take their anger and they direct it at the bullies of the world. And, uh, and, and they use their anger to advocate for weak people, victims, those who need help. Uh, and, and they're defenders uh, of, of people in, in positions of vulnerability. But see, if you're on the path of integrity, you take that anger and you actually channel it at yourself. Because as broken as the world is, you are intimately acquainted with how short you fall of your own standards. You see, you have this ideal in your head, this ideal, virtuous, perfect way that the world is supposed to be, and then you're confronted constantly with the way it actually is, and it's maddening. And you are first and foremost the problem because you know your own self. And so all of that anger is channeled at yourself, but you don't even recognize it because you, sp- you know that anger is not a virtuous feeling. You know it's not a good or a perfect way to be, and so you clamp down on it, and you just you shove it down because you know that you shouldn't feel anger, and, and you deny it even to yourself, which is why I say it's secretly an angry way to live. Uh, and maybe angry doesn't feel like the right word, but so, so let me expand on that. Maybe it's not just anger. Maybe, maybe it's that you're constantly annoyed or frustrated or peevish or exasperated. And maybe you don't recognize any of these adjectives about yourself, but, I, but I, if you even suspect that this is a path that you walk for any of the good reasons that we've talked about, I'd encourage you to ask the people in your life your spouse, your friends, your coworkers. Ask them if any of these adjectives ever come to mind in their interactions with you. And that's a clue to the secret anger that's just always boiling inside of you that you keep clamped down as tightly as you can. For me, this was my entry to this path or to recognizing it was that a word that my wife frequently used about me was peevish. <laughs> And at the time, I just thought, well, all right, fine, you know, thanks for the insult you know, or whatever, but, but I didn't think much of it. And it was only later on that I realized, wow, she was actually onto something. Because for me, it never felt peevish. For me, it felt like this, this quest for relentless self-improvement, this quest to, to make sure that everything was right. And she said, yeah, it just makes you grouchy all the time. And every time something fell short of my standards or, or she, she cooked a meal, and, and again, in my helpfulness, I was saying, oh, maybe this could use a little more salt next time. And she'd say, oh, my gosh. Stop complaining about the food that I just lovingly cooked for you. It ultimately was revealed to me just it was such an angry way to live. See, not only that, there's another dark side of the path of integrity. Because this is the true problem. This is the thing that makes you angry. That there is an inner standard of perfection that is impossible to live up to. Just truly impossible. And so what makes someone on this path so frustrated and peevish and and annoyed all the time is that they are constantly berated by this inner critic that says, this wasn't perfect, it wasn't good enough. And it means that you can't even compliment this kind of a person because you can say that they did a great job, an excellent work, uh, and and it falls on deaf ears because all they can feel inside is what it should have been like. 
and no one else is criticizing. Everyone else is pleased and happy with the work they've done. After all, these are virtuous leaders who, who, who are conscientious and lead by example. Everyone else around them is, is pleased and happy with their contributions to society, and they are the only one saying, but it should have been this good. But I know where I fell short and what I meant to do, and I wasn't able to do it, and so now that's eating me up inside. One of the ways you recognize whether you or someone you know spends a lot of time on this particular path is if they completely change when they go on vacation. Where suddenly they're on vacation and they're fun-loving and they're joyful and they're excited and adventurous uh, and, and it's like they're a different person than what you're used to and it's because vacation is the only way that they let that inner critic have a break. Because right? when you're living life, when, when, you're, when you're being in your family and parenting your kids and doing your job and making the impact you need to make, that's always in the back of your mind saying, oh, you didn't do enough, you didn't do enough, it wasn't to your standards. And then they go on vacation and it's like the one thing that gives them permission to just shut that off and say, hey, I don't have to do anything but sit on a beach and relax. And suddenly they get their true self back, they get joy and peace back. If that sounds familiar to you, if you've witnessed that in a loved one, then that's a clue that they're probably someone who's in this place. Because the reality is, as good as that person might be, and they often are, again, the the scions and pillars of our society, as good as they are, they, they will never deviate from this truth that they have always fallen short of their standards. James 2 in the Bible puts it this way, He says, forever, whoever keeps the entire law, every word of God's moral commandments, and yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. And if you get stuck on the path of integrity, this verse rings true to you. This this hits right to the core of everything that you've always believed and understood because you know that you have fallen short somewhere, which means that all of it uh, is out of your reach, that perfection is impossible to achieve. Because ultimately, again, go back to that point, uh, this inner standard, it's truly impossible to live up to. We can't ever get there. Which means that if we stay on this path without finding some way to redeem it or, or understand our own wiring and desires, if we don't let God through Jesus Christ speak into our lives, this path ends in only one of two ways. You're either going to end in hypocrisy or despair. And maybe that sounds bleak, but let me tell you, I've lived this personally. And I've come to this truth the hard way. So let me unpack it a little bit. Hypocrisy. See, this is the thing, is that you've got this heart-driven vision that the world is not what it was meant to be. And it was supposed to be this perfect, good place. And so you are driven with every fiber of your being to make that happen, to make the world better, to make it perfect, to work for change and growth and transformation. And there comes the point where you realize it's not happening. I've done all this work. I've worked so hard to make the world perfect, to make it match my own ideals of what I think it needs to be, and it isn't going to happen. And so what happens is you start compromising. And you start to say, you know what? The end justifies the means. And and since the noble and the virtuous ways aren't accomplishing this transformation of the world that I want it to, then I'll, I'll settle for some other ways. And you'll start doing things that are underhanded 
things that are unethical, things that absolutely don't live up to your standard, but you justify it to yourself because you say, you know what, it's, it's in service of the greater good. It's, it's in service of this vision of perfection that I'm trying to accomplish in the lives of people around me and in the world. And slowly but surely, you start to do hypocritical actions. You start to see it when, when supposedly you know, one particular Christian politician gets called out for some sexually dubious behavior. Uh, and when and when a late night comedian calls him out on it, this politician tweets at him and says, oh yeah, well, if you ever want to talk about Christian values, you come on down here and, and face me. And the comedian's able to say to that person, well, when you ever get some Christian values, I'll be there and we'll talk about it. You see, the world, they see us and they see what happens when we let the end justify the means. And when people who are so just scrunched up in this path of integrity that they'll do anything at any cost to get there, it ultimately undermines the very thing we are aiming for. We're even seeing it actually right now in our own denomination because a, a former vice president of our, of our denomination just went public with some allegations that, uh, that a lot of the leadership that are currently in power uh, have been consistently and steadily for 30 years using unethical tactics to force out good men and women because they thought they were preaching heresy. You see, and, and, and again, it's a good thing. We don't want to preach bad things. We don't want to preach wrong things about the Bible. But what happened with those leaders was they started to say, for the sake of this noble good, we'll do the underhanded things. We'll do the unethical things. We'll do the illegal things if it means that we've protected the purity of our faith. And what I say to that person is, you've already lost it. Because if it takes hypocrisy to make the good things happen, then they must not have been that good in the first place or your standards were wrong. Or what ends up happening is much more personal, that if you stay on this path, you end up drowning in despair. Because you're not a hypocrite and you say, no, I'm not going to fall short of these standards. I'm not going to stoop to means that I can't do. And then what you realize is you are toast because you can't do it. Because every day you're confronted with your own fallibility. Every day you see yet another flaw that you cannot find a way to to excoriate or get out of yourself. My favorite example of this is is Martin Luther, actually, one of the the founders of our particular flavor of Christianity. And if you don't know his story, he was part of the Catholic tradition, which says that a part of your rhythm and your routine is that you need to regularly go to a priest and confess your sins so that you can be made right with God. And, And I think most people throughout history have just taken that somewhat casually. You know, they've gone into the booth and they've they've confessed the sins they can remember or that they can think of, and then they go on their merry way. But Martin Luther lived on the path of integrity, and that was enough for him. He he would confess sins, and he would leave the booth, and as he was walking away, he realized he had an impure thought, and he'd turn right back around and go back into the confessional booth. And it got to the point where he was having to confess 10, 20 times a day. He was waking up his father confessor in the middle of the night because he had a dream that was a little impure. And so he had to wake up and and go confess it. Because what he realized was if you take this seriously, if you really believe ultimately that integrity is the end all, be all, you will never get there. And then you despair and you give up. So there's got to be a path out of this. There's got to be a way to live the path of integrity that doesn't end in one of these two really unfortunate dead ends. And so here's what it is. To be on this path in a good and a healthy way, you have to, you must let go of the burden of perfection. 
And for those of you that don't spend much time on this path, that doesn't probably sound that hard to you. But I promise you, if this is anywhere that you have put identity or time or effort, that is the most difficult thing in the world you could think of. Because it's wired into the core of your being, the, the standard of perfection that, that I aspire to, that I live up to. This is who I am. It's what I strive for. And, and, and I'm telling you, you have to let go of the burden of perfection. And there's only one way I know of to do it, which is to receive this unconditional acceptance from God. To recognize that this burden of perfection, God never actually gave that to you. I think a lot of religious people get it this wrong because they're so naturally drawn to integrity and virtue and ethics and excellence, and they think that this was a burden that God imposed on us. That God said, I need you to be perfect. I need you to be right. I need you to be noble and holy and better so that you can be in a relationship with me. And what I promise you is the same thing that Martin Luther's father confessor promised to him. That when he finally could not keep up with the pace of Luther's confession, he said, read the Bible and see what God shows you. And what Luther discovered is what I've discovered and what I hope you will believe with me this morning is that God never put this burden of perfection on us. Think about the Ten Commandments when God gave us his moral law and notice where that happened in the timeline of God's relationship with his people. You see, he rescued them from slavery first. He didn't say, get your act together, follow my laws, and then I will rescue you from the hands of Egypt. And he doesn't say to us, get your act together, get right, and then I will send my son to be in a relationship with you. It's it's completely flipped cause and effect. God offers us unconditional acceptance, and our perfection or quality has no bearing on the perfect relationship that he offers us. This is how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians. He says that God made him who had no sin, Jesus Christ, God made Jesus Christ to be a sin offering for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see what this is saying? It's saying that that we are the righteousness of God, but not through any ethical integrity way of acting ourselves. Through the sacrifice of Christ, he made us righteous before God. It is completely irrelevant what quality of ethic or integrity that we've lived to be made this. Or let me put it in the terms that I've been using. This is another way that the writer of the Hebrews puts it. He says, for by one sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, God has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And and that just means people who've been died for. Christ died for you, which made you holy, which means that now you are made perfect forever. And if you are someone who has felt that burden of perfection, let this truth wash over you. Let it relieve you of the need to have to aspire to some version of God's perfection before you are righteous and accepted. You have been made perfect. Not through anything you've achieved, not through anything you've ever accomplished through the work of God. Let me put this another way, that the world will never be perfect before Christ's second coming. It's never going to happen. And we lose so much sleep and heart and anxiety over trying to create heaven on earth without realizing that that's something that happens through God's action 
and it's something he's promised will happen. See, here's the thing. We need people on the path of integrity. We need people to be these virtuous leaders, but we need them to be hopeful and joyful. We need them not to be stuck on this dead-end rut that leads to hypocrisy or despair. We need them to be set free from the burden of perfection so that they can actually joyfully make an impact in the world. You see, here's the thing. We'll never be perfect in this life. We'll never eliminate all of our flaws. But that's not something we have to aspire to. You see, you see this all throughout the world that when people achieve perfection, it's not satisfying to them. You know, the Warriors can win championship after championship, and yet they're continually striving for more. See, perfection is not this end goal that we thought it was. What we're truly aiming for is a perfect, loving relationship with our God. And that's already been created for you. It's there. You have it. And with that unconditional acceptance, suddenly this, this unrealistic, impossible ideal of perfection can go away. And instead, you can just joyfully aim for progress. These flaws that we thought were disqualifying to God, now they just become endearing in God's sight because he's already made us perfect. And now he just wants to see us grow and develop, but not out of fear or guilt or shame, but just simply because we're so pleased to be loved and accepted, we can't wait to make ourselves better and to peacefully and kindly make other people better. It changes our relationships. I no longer have to be upset that my wife loads the dishwasher wrong and it becomes a thing that affects how I engage with her and how I love her and how I care for her. It can just be a thing that's like, well, it's not the end of the world. Yeah, I'd like to load it a little better so I don't have to run that bowl twice. But, but suddenly it doesn't have to become the defining thing that defines her or that defines me. What defines us is that God has made us perfect. And now we get to aim for progress with the rest of what our lives have before us. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I give you thanks that you are the one true perfection in this world and that you didn't take your own perfection and hold it up as a standard that we had to meet, a bar that we had to clear. Instead, you gave it to us freely through the sacrifice of your son. You declared us perfect. And with that burden removed, we can now joyfully go about this path of growth and progress. With that burden removed, we can delight in the next steps that other people take without having to condemn them for the steps that they haven't yet managed to follow. And so, Lord, I pray that your peace and acceptance would be on every person in this place. That your perfection that you've already given us would be a good enough goal and that we could move forward with joy and hope. We pray in your holy name. Amen.